0: We're going to be opening up the scriptures now as we seek to go from uh embracing god through prayer to listening to god through his word and spirit and so if you want to open up to ephesians we're going to be continuing on in our series that we've called the geography of heaven we are in chapter 2 verses 11 through 16 today it will be up on the screen behind me if you are new with us we would love to give you a gift Out on the connect table, we have little journals that are actually the printed out text of Ephesians with uh, one page that's just lines to take notes. Um, A lot of people bring those on Sundays and keep writing and taking personal notes and application. We would love to give you one of those along with our favorite pen. It's actually objectively the best pen in the world. It's called a Muji pen. 0.38, yes, of course 0.38. None of that 0.5 stuff in here. Um, We're nerdy about our pens. Uh, So we've called the series The Geography of Heaven, particularly because Ephesians is crazy. If its claims are true, everything is different than we have been formed and discipled in our culture to believe, and even inside the church to believe. Because heaven is something that we have conceptualized as a distant um, dimension that will, will be encountered when we die. And in fact, Ephesians claims that heaven is a current reality in, offered to anyone who would choose to follow Jesus and embrace him. Right? Geography sounds like this tactile map that you can definitively stand on a mountain. It's right there. Heaven feels ethereal. We've called it the geography of heaven because Ephesians claims that heaven and the reality of God's presence here in the world that you and I live in, in Los Angeles, is more real than the very stuff we walk on every day because all of that is gonna be changed. But what will not change is the presence and kingdom of God that we are invited into. All of us, by virtue of our humanity, were made for it. And so we're diving into Ephesians to explore it that we could live it out. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, using our bodies to, to direct our hearts in reverence to God, we're going to read this text and dive in. Ephesians 2, 11-16. Therefore, remember and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, uh, by, by faith and trust in the truthfulness of the Scriptures, we believe you are here, and that by simply directing ourselves in openness, to what you have to say and lead us in, you can open the eyes of our hearts to the glory of Jesus in a way that will utterly change us, our church, and our world. And so as we seek to listen to you, we trust you. Would you help whatever may be coming up in us this morning, whatever may be pressing in on us this morning, um, help us to not be distracted by those things, but to bring those things into your presence, knowing that that you commune with us as we are where we are. Um, What needs to be revealed in us, open our eyes. What needs to be laid at your feet in repentance, grant us strength, um, and teach us how to live out this new reality of heaven on earth as we follow you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen, all right, you can take a seat. So one really, really simple point that the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter called Ephesians, which is just named after the church people that it was written to in the city of Ephesus, one simple point that he's making in these six verses is this. If we want more of Jesus in and through us, We must embrace costly unity among us. I'm gonna say that again. Because I know we want the first part. That's why you're here. If we want more of Jesus in, that is experiential reality of communion with God, and through, that is, that God would be pleased to use us in the lives of those around us and in our city, if we want more of Jesus in and through us, we must embrace costly unity among us most Christians especially in the American church settle for comfortability homogeneity in a variety of ways because we've been subtly discipled by something beyond the scriptures and it's implicit and it's everywhere it's ubiquitous the simple simple unholy Trinity of Consumption, individualism, and self-expression. That is that I find joy in consuming things, consumerism. Um, I am the authority for my life and in isolation, I am a solitary human being that is self-sufficient, individualism, and what flows naturally from my inner world is my truth, self-expression. You wanna know what's really hard to cultivate with those three things shaping us? Other-oriented, sacrificial unity and love. In fact, like don't all three of those kind of directly contradict unity and diversity? Unless diversity and unity kind of naturally flows from all of those things, which I will suggest to you is not possible, okay? If we want more of Jesus in and through us, the basic premise of this series, we need to to embrace costly unity among us. We've been talking about this notion of the geography of heaven through Ephesians where once once you have seen Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm yours, I wanna follow you, you're in. That's the mercy and love of God that is chasing down every human being on the planet, and one day will be fully realized for all of us who have hoped in Jesus. But there's still this dynamic in this life where Jesus freely offers us into more of himself. That the resurrection of Jesus is supposed to spill out and pour over into our lives in a way that we are maturing in our faith, that we would be more full of peace and joy and power and love so even though if you're here and you're a christian you're in you have everything at your disposal god is accessible to you the question for all of us is are we seeking to press in and maximize this resurrection life that jesus has given us by his spirit and that's where we see so much of the hollowness in our christian life in the american west and in the church And it is nowhere more clear than in the seeking of unity in the church, right? We want to be comfortable. We want our preferences to be met in Sunday gatherings, the kinds of songs that just move us to tears, the particular way in which we do community, whatever it might be. All of us have this natural knee-jerk impetus that says, "Ah, my spiritual well-being is pre." is predicated on something that I'm determining I need in this given moment. But Jesus invites us to much more adventure than that, into discomfort, into the wilderness of life with God in a world that wants to push him out. And so what we need to see is that after we enter this this geography of heaven the river of union with Jesus, we walk into it, we're baptized into Christ, we get up, we walk out, we're seeking to live into this transformation, we find there are other people on this journey with us. And we can't have more of Jesus without them. Because as His image bearers, each of us reflects something distinct and different of His glory and to say no to them is to in some way say no to the god they reflect so we do not lift up diversity as a as a cultural like attractiveness to a world that is obsessed with diversity but in some way it's really uniformity in the way that it's carried out diversity is in the heart and mind of God because he is too big to be reflected in any one church, any one Christian, any one community. Am I, are you tracking with me? So there are other people with us on this journey along the geography of heaven throughout our lives, and if we cannot learn to not just cope with one another but love and appreciate and receive one another, we ain't getting far. Actually, our church is called the Commons LA because of this very fact. We want to be a common community with Jesus in the center that is centered on him and creates us. Anyone can come in and get close to Jesus and be who they were created to be, and we want to learn and grow and be transformed in that experience, right? But, sadly, probably don't need to show even a raise of hands. Uh, We live in crazy divided times. Division is the new operating norm, right? And we find unity in being divided from those people, which is not unity, certainly not heavenly unity. Division and alienation is the most natural outcome in a fallen and alienated world from God. Quite simply, human beings don't have the capacity for unthreatened relationships with people who are different than them. Uh, This was exposed in me when I was on staff with a church over in Hollywood. I would take the bus, and when you ride the bus, there are all sorts of people on the bus. And when a certain kind of person with a certain image or smell or uh, way of talking, whatever, would come and sit behind me, While I'm working on my computer or doing whatever, I would find that I would grab on a little bit stronger to said valuable item. And one day the Holy Spirit just, I think, tapped on my shoulder and said, what presuppositions do you think are underneath that? Well, there certainly can be a kind of street smarts, right? We don't wanna just say we must be naive in order to find uh, diversity, something that we can embrace. But there was something else going on in that, right? I I had been preforming judgments about particular people. And so instead doing that, turning around and actually talking to them and finding out that they're a person just like I am. So I come into this conversation and this scripture with desperate need to grow. Desperate need to be opened up to God who is far wilder than I am comfortable with but who is reflective in people that I need to learn to find beauty and appreciation for. I actually need to be in community with. So I hope that in the midst of this conversation, we don't take this passage of scripture and the implications from it and derive some sort of being threatened and needing to hide. All of us have prejudice. It's just to a particular group of people that probably had some form of our own experience living in our own communities and the judgments that we made growing up. We could just own that. And actually, Ephesians gives us language that helps us identify just why those things are so powerful. These are not just human things. The principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities are brought up again and again and again throughout Ephesians because guess what? What's real and what has real power in the world is not just what you and I can see, and it ain't just Jesus' spirit that's invisible. Satan and demons and the powers that were intended to glorify and honor God in ruling over the visible world also rebelled against God. This is a a historic Jewish understanding that at the time of Ephesians would have been totally normal to the Jewish readers of scripture. There's a reason why when when a a protest turns into a mob, it feels like there's magnetism towards the violence. It is a spiritual thing. That's why when you're in a stadium, cheering for your team, but then the refs blow it, everyone just rages against them and people who are like sitting next to you in church on one day are saying, I'm gonna see you in the parking lot outside to the ref that cost them the game. This actually happened in the Bucks versus, uh, uh, who are they playing? Yes, just yesterday. Guy going up for a three pointer, they didn't call it a three pointer, cost them the game, they were down by three, should have got three free throws, they lost the game because of it, right? There's a spiritual reality involved in the world when groups of people get together. So we shouldn't be surprised when these things that are so deep in the roots of our country and our culture feel like we can't even encroach upon them. Things like racism, prejudice, oppression, injustice, hatred. And until we as the church can own those things in us, we have no hope for getting nearer to Jesus and nearer to the kind of vision of heaven that God has for us. Couple of very simple observations. The first one is this. Um, In the land of alienation and death, division reigns. I already mentioned this, but in verses 11 and 12, uh, we see that the kind of alienation and other-oriented hatred was even among God's people Israel in the writing of Ephesians, at the time of the writing of Ephesians. You notice something really weird probably when I started reading the text. Remember therefore that at one time you who were once called the circum or the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now, all sorts of thoughts probably come flooding into our minds, but it really simply is the fact that a part, a mark of the people of Israel, was the covenant ceremony of circumcision of a male on the eighth day as their entrance into the religious people, the spiritual reality of God's covenant people, okay? It became symbolic for who they were, not just in the act itself, but in the sense of they were a people set apart for God in the midst of people who did not have access to God in the same way. That's why you read here, you were cut off from Christ at that time. But God's plan and heart was never that the people of Israel would be set apart in pride and prejudice towards, Jane Austen shout out, um, towards the people around them. Their distinctness was actually supposed to enable them to be among the foreigners. So that they could actually be in relationship and yet be distinct. Do you see the difference there? Rather than establish a kind of boundary that says we are the in crowd here and once you cross this line, you are in Israel and we here um, are the people of God in a way that is supposed to separate us from you. There's a kind of hostility that can come about from that. Instead, we are supposed to be a people that are so marked by obedience and listening and dedication to the one true God that when you see us and you say, why are you like this? We say, because God has saved us and ransomed us from Israel, however many hundreds of years ago it would have been for them, thousands of years ago at that time, and you can know him too distinctness was supposed to be a mark of other-oriented love among the people of Israel. That's where the act of circumcision came from. But the moniker being called the uncircumcision and the circumcision came from the prejudice that took hold of that distinctness and turned it into a source of pride. So God never said, do not go among those who I call the circumcision from now until the rest of human history. It was a kind of shorthand for the identity uh, politics, if you will, of saying, oh yeah, those people are filthy. And we, by virtue of our activity, are the holy ones. So we don't need to look far in order to see this kind of clustering of people into a group that we can then hate, take two party politics, right? There there are certain conversations that you can't have without feeling rage well up within you. Probably, that or we've just given up on the whole thing. That is a human thing, not just an American thing. Rather than do the work of uncomfortable relationship and humanizing a certain subset, we, we cut off, group together and really just laziness, comfort, say, we want to push you off to the side. What does that do, though? It exalts us. And suddenly, we're the ones with the moral high ground. And rather than actually doing the work of other-oriented, sacrificial, God-honoring love, we suddenly can feel good about ourselves because we're not them. And the reason this is so hideous is because God does not want a people who are morally clean the not them. He wants a people that are courageously loving and self-sacrificing. Certainly, we wanna keep ourselves from getting distracted and caught up in sin, addiction, all of those things that are dishonoring to God, harming to our own dignity and imaging of God and others. But we got to get past that and get into proximity with people that are different than us in order to actually show the love of God. Still tracking? And so what we see is something so practical for you and for me because it is still a human, demon-fueled, principalities and powers kind of thing that can say that group of people are the truly wicked ones. And the seed of fear that boils over into hate and pride in us, that boils up over into kind of two-party politics and whatever else it might be for you and for me, UCLA, USC, um, is real. And we've got to be able to see it for what it is that we can lay our hatred of other people at the feet of Jesus. Now, I need to say what Ephesians 2 is not saying is that the law of God was bad. The law of God, the the rules that God gave to his people were not bad or evil or setting them up for failure. What it reveals to us is that even good, pure things can be hijacked by human flesh, pride, and evil spirits. One author puts it this way, the problem was not with the Mosaic law, as if God regretted giving the scriptures to Israel, the problem was that the powers, that's his shorthand for powers, principalities, uh, and authorities, hijacked the law and pressed its distinctions into service for their ends of setting Israel against other nations. The law of God is God's good gift to his people, giving light to the eyes and nourishment to the soul But the distinction-making function of the law, which was to set Israel apart for special service to God and the nations, is susceptible to perversion by the powers and corruption by sinful humans. This special role and the distinctions that were necessary for Israel to carry it out were all manipulated by the fallen powers for evil. Christ overcame this function of the law in his death and resurrection by creating in himself a completely new people, A new humanity made up of Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. So the reason that you and I no longer need to travel to Jerusalem for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is because in Jesus Christ, all of that law has been fulfilled. No longer do we need certain cultural markers to be the real people of God. So what the powers and principalities had used to create hostility between God's people and those around them is supposed to be disarmed because instead of abiding by those things, we get near to Jesus who is our peace. And so whoever can get to Jesus is in. Whoever hears and opens their heart and life to Jesus is in without condition. It doesn't look like that. I mean, even in the church, we have those kinds of Christians. Well, they're a a Pentecostal, or they're Anglican, or they're non-denominational, or they're evangelical. And we have a whole subset of presuppositions about each other low-grade hostility. There's a way that can be helpful. I'm not saying that that there's not a helpfulness to those things, but when there's derision involved, it's destructive and hateful. Um, When the church looks out in the world, like now we're gonna step on some fragile ground, I'll say. Um, When we look out in the world as followers of Jesus, we think there are certain things people must leave behind before they can come to Jesus and get in. Your sexuality. Uh, You need to leave behind all of those things about you before you can get to Jesus. The reason that, I'll just be straight up with you. We believe in a biblical sexual ethic where marriage is something for a man and a woman in permanent covenant love. That is where the gift of sex was created to be housed. Just gotta be really clear. If you wanna talk about that, I would love to talk with you in open scripture, see where that is. But what what has happened is, is suddenly you need to conform into that before you can get to the Savior and Lord of the universe. And what we do is we actually put up a barrier and say you need to change yourself before you get to Jesus. That is not the gospel. We get people to Jesus and he does the work of changing. Otherwise, our presupposition is we get and understand everything that Jesus wants to change about us and we changed it. And if you and me think that we have the lock on God's will for us, we've actually made Jesus much safer than he actually is. We've made him into our image. And so, we as the church, in the way that we go out in love to our neighbor, we need a kind of non judgmental presence that says Jesus is so big, anyone has hope. Whether you, by your life, look very close to God, like a Jewish person would have looked in the first century in the eyes of others, or by your life, you look very far from God, like a Gentile would have looked in the first century when Jesus came. All the lines are broken down. And Jesus is at the center. And if we get people to him to see his beauty and to say, if he's that merciful and compassionate, if he's that transformative, if he can fill me with joy and peace that gives me a solidity to my person, then I am in. But notice the way that that is communicated to us. Other-oriented acceptance can only come about if we are ready to die to ourselves for the sake of others. In the land of resurrection life, aka the church following Jesus together, Jesus's peace reigns. We're supposed to be a people of peace. If we follow the God who made all of us and whose glory is communicated in some way, shape, or form, in some, some way, even though it may be corrupted and is corrupted in us, peace is supposed to reign, so we got to figure this out. Um, three observations, okay? These are from Eugene Peterson, a, an old man who went to be with the Lord and had immense wisdom. Um, how the peace of Jesus reigns in the church. Okay, we're gonna get into the last few verses here with these points. This is what, um, well, I'll make a statement and then read a quote from old Mr. Eugene. The first one is, don't live in dividedness. Don't live in dividedness, in isolation. What's very, very normal is for young Christians to say, yes, unity, diversity, and say, that's what it needs to look like, but I'm a solitary eyeball in the body of Jesus rolling around over here outside of the two hours of church on Sundays. Do you see that although there might not be a cutting of the body, there is a willful dividedness that I'm stepping out into by virtue of my decisions about what I do? Jesus saved you for more than that. And in fact, you need more than that because that is no witness to unity. That's an easy way to live. This is what Pastor Eugene says. First, the first thing that Jesus does and the first thing that characterizes Jesus' is peace that we need for unity. First, Jesus is a person. That means peace is personal. It is nothing if not personal. There are no other ways. Peace cannot be achieved in impersonal ways. Jesus is always relational, never a disembodied idea, never a bureaucratized arrangement. Peace requires participation in the ways of peace, participation in Jesus who is our peace. So the first simple question is more a self-reflective one about the way that we choose to live, whether we have chosen unity Or chosen division for ourselves in the way that we live apart from God's people in community Um, I want to just first acknowledge guys we're immersed in a world that wants to divide us it's the most natural thing in the world to live an isolated siloed life so there's not a hint of judgment in the midst of this point It's saying that's the world and what it's trained us to do because if if we can be isolated, we're just sitting ducks for the world to pull us apart, for our flesh to lead us into sin and isolation. Jump into the water. Like, this is where life is found. We need other people to reflect the beauty and kindness and grace of Jesus so that we could know in an embodied way that's really who Jesus is. So as a church, we have what we call mission partnership, which is just the way of planting our flag and giving the clarity to say, I'm a part of this community. There's nothing but what we see in scripture as the basic commitments, and we know that half of us are gonna be leaving here in the next four years. So the question then becomes, why would I even do something like that if I know I'm just gonna be gone? Well, if you want to be a healthy transplant, like a tree, you need to be planted somewhere before you're transplanted, otherwise you die. So what you're doing now is habituating what you will be then. Don't buy the lie that it's an inefficient waste of time. It is the most timely thing you could do, but for all of us... so. Come up, talk to me. What's, tell me more about mission partnership. Talk to somebody with a lanyard on. We would love to tell you about what it looks like to simply dive in through clarity. Because community, here's the thing community is something we like to talk about, but community requires clarity. Are you really with me? I know we're like sharing in an experience right now, but what's different about like a concert where we share in an experience? versus a people we belong to and are committed to, right? All right, the second thing that old Pastor Eugene says about the peace of Jesus, says don't divide with Jesus united. This is what most of us think about. Um, This is more the ripping away. I'll read Pastor Eugene and give some observations. Second, Jesus respects us as persons. He does not force himself upon any of us. He does not impose peace. He does not coerce. Jesus treats us with dignity. His peace is not a decree that everyone must get along without hurting or killing or despising one another. Peace is never external to us. All of us are participants in peace. Jesus is at work bringing us all that is us, our external souls into a life of connectedness and intimacy and love. So the reason the church looks so stinking divided and dysfunctional is because Jesus forces grace upon no one, even his people. So we can look at the church and say, that looks pathetic. That looks worse than the world in some ways. And I would, even, I would press you to look beyond headlines in the media to see the amount of beauty that is actually at work in the church and the way that Jesus is still faithful in ways that are not public and platformed. But it is true that the church can look as though it's not close to Jesus because it's running in the other way sometimes. This has to do with the kind of person that God is. God does not force himself upon anyone. God opens eyes to see who he really is. And in the seeing of his beauty and love, we are drawn in and made participants in his peace. That requires that we learn how to be like him. That means we need his teachings in order to put it into practice. And we need his people in order to have a place where his rules reign and dictate the way that we love each other. So the old way, of ghosting someone you don't like very much is prohibited in the church of Jesus's peace. You just don't have permission to do that from the Lord Jesus. He'll let you do it, but you don't have permission to do it, if that makes sense. And friends, after the last two years with COVID and politics and racial injustice, I am talking to people who have experienced that ghosting. And I just wanna say, keep going. And grace abounds, and I want to call us to more. If you have a problem with someone, um, talk to them. Maybe even say, "Hey, there's something that I think we just... I want to talk to you. I want to ask question. Come with questions before judgment, condemnation. Um, there's something that's been that, that I've had questions about. Can can we sit down and grab coffee and just talk about it?" and then share your experience of a decision or a person, and Lord willing, the Holy Spirit at least helps to see something that then can be worked through. That's just basic humanness. So, the other side of this coin and not ripping apart the flesh of Jesus' body is walking in the light with our hatred because those behaviors flow from a kind of self-centeredness that the scriptures call hatred. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, um, if you despise your brother, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer in your heart already. The same seed that is hate that flows out into other things is the very thing that grows out into the tree of murder. Guys, Jesus wants way more from us than just not killing each other. He wants us to not kill our relationships. So, in your discipleship group this week, the way that we gather in groups of three to six men or women and try and follow Jesus together, ask that question. Like, which, what people are very easy for you to not like, to despise, to hate? Create a space where you can talk about it so that the light of Jesus by the Spirit and the Scriptures can bring transformation. Because the ghosting will keep happening. The the bubbling over of these things needs to be dealt with in its root. Last observation, bring your conflict to Jesus himself. We can do the horizontal stuff, but we need to see the vertical reality in all of this. Pastor Eugene says, third, the way that Jesus becomes our peace, and this is the crux literally, is by an act of sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus is what makes Jesus, Jesus. It is what makes peace, peace. It is what makes church, church. That is really profound. The Jesus that you and I follow, if you see him, if you love him, if you have experienced him, it was not one who one day said, I need to go down there and die for them so that they can get cleaned up and they can be acceptable to me. The Jesus who laid his life down on the cross was one whose very composition is mercy and other-oriented love that will go to the lengths of self-sacrifice for you and me. The cross has always been bound up in the heart of God because it marks the character and nature. And so when Paul says in Ephesians here, Jesus himself is our peace and he killed the hostility by dying on the cross. It was yours and my assurance that not only is it possible to have peace in the horizontal with people, but that the very source of that is us being with a God who has no more hostility towards us. That the you you are in your brokenness and even in your evil is desired by God because the hostility was killed at the cross. And so if you don't even follow Jesus right now, you need to know that the disposition and posture of God towards you is not one of chasing you around to punish you, but one of following you, wooing you, calling you, saying, look what I've done for you. And that's how I continue to deal with you and love you and lead you. And I'll actually make you a carrier of that kind of love if you will let me. And as we lay all of our stuff that divides us down at the feet of Jesus, we become more like him. And so if we will simply not alienate ourselves, but be committed in, if we'll bring these things that we feel too condemned, shameful, into community, we can know that Jesus himself is strong enough to bring us and others together in himself. Now, that does not mean we need the right technique for peace management, that is not what I'm saying. I am saying that the real presence of Jesus dwells among us as a small group of his people. And if we will say "I'm in," he himself will make those of us who thought we could never sit in the same room, we could never sit in the same living room, we could never share a meal, we could never talk about hard things, he himself will unite us, amen?